You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. I deserve more with kind of an attitude of worthlessness or um, feeling jealousy towards someone else, feeling you deserve better. Another, another point was our time on earth, which also belongs to God. Are we being selfish with our time or are we being selfless with our time? Money. Are we holding on to it with a mind perspective? Are we being greedy? Or are we looking for opportunities to funnel God's money out to those in need? And then spiritual gifts. Are we using our spiritual gifts that God gives us? Or are we trying to uh, suppress or squelch those gifts in order to prevent from using them? And again, the list goes further on. I'm not going to go through all of them, but there was the body of the church, the body of Christ, the church, our own bodies regarding our health and fitness, uh, and our own spiritual walk with God. On the second Sunday, we had Doug Hayes come in. He was with Covenant Mercies. And he came out to speak about what true generosity looked like. Where true generosity in the purest form takes a Christ-like selflessness that is driven by faith and directed to those who cannot return the favor. His example of that type of generosity was providing financial support to orphans so that they could receive food, clothing, shelter, education, and so forth. And as Sean uh, told us last week, we, we were able to sponsor 10 orphans that night. And I, and I would say that from our church members alone, with a with small group that we have, to, to sponsor 10 kids, that's pretty amazing. And so that was, that was a great response from our church. Last Sunday, we had Dean Klein share his message on stewardship from 1 Peter 4. And he said, since Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, we as believers were no longer a slave to sin. In response, we shall no longer live according to the flesh for human passions, but live for the will of God. As God's stewards here on earth, our focus should be with the end in mind. We are to remain faithful, self-controlled, sober-minded in our prayers, in loving one another, in showing hospitality without grumbling, and using the gifts that God gave us to serve others so that we may do everything for God, to to glorify God through Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to be wrapping up this series on biblical stewardship, and I'm going to be reading what Jesus taught from Luke chapter 16. And this is the parable of the dishonest manager. So if you'll turn with me, uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 16, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 13. He also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager." 
And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill, sit down and quickly write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. Verse 11. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, so when we read through this from like a surface level, just a quick surface level, there's parts of it that may seem a little confusing. So what I'd like to do is just kind of go back and work through this scripture verse by verse. We're going to start back at verse 1, where, he's, where Jesus says, where, where the text states, he also said to the disciples. So right there, right away, we know that Jesus is speaking directly to his disciples about this parable. However, the word also indicates that this was a continuation of some gathering that had already taken place around Jesus. So if you were to look back in chapter 15, verses 1 to 2, we see that Jesus was not only speaking to the disciples, but they were eating together with tax collectors and sinners. And then in verse 2, it gives additional information that the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling again amongst themselves as they were listening, and, listening in and watching. If we go back to chapter 16 and dive down to verse 14, it also read, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all of these things, and they ridiculed him. So while Jesus may have been speaking directly to his disciples in verses 1 through 13, the onlookers, if you will, included the tax collectors, the sinners, the Pharisees, and the scribes. And I want you to keep what verse 14 stated in the back of your minds. The Pharisees were lovers of money, because we're going to be coming back to that. And so while Jesus may have been, like I said, talking directly to the disciples, we'll see that he was also indirectly, if you will, talking to the Pharisees. So let's go back to verse 1 here. It says, he also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since the master has taken the management away from me. Okay, 
So right away, we see that this manager's dishonesty has finally caught up with him. He has been found out, and now his means of living is coming to an end. He's being fired. He was in responsible charge of this rich man's possessions to manage it and manage it well. But now he'll have to give an account for what he did. Reading on, uh, turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And the manager said to himself, verse 3, what shall I do since the manager has taken the management away from me? I am not strong enough to dig and I am ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when the, I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Notice the, the initial sense of panic. What shall I do? He's, he's leaving the, the presence of his master. He's been called to go get his account. So he's walking away. What shall I do? And we also get an image from this man in verse 3. He stated, I am not strong enough to dig. He's, he's worrying. I'm not strong enough to dig. And, and he also says he's ashamed to beg. So from those, those images there, right there, he's not strong enough to dig. He's, he's ashamed to beg. It kind of gives us a picture of what this guy may have been like. It almost sounds like this was someone who has indulged in a very comfortable lifestyle, doing very little hard work, and thought very, very, very highly of himself. So what does he do? Verse 4, I have decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. All right, so not, clearly this man is dishonest. But verse 4 is also showing us something else about this man. He's crafty and quick to think on his feet. He quickly devised a scheme as he's walking away from the presence of his manager, of his master, and getting the contract to get his account. He's already working up a plan in his head on what to do. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, 100 measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, 100 measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Okay, again, we need to remember this man was in responsible charge of the rich man's possessions. And it's reasonable to conclude, to conclude at that time, he probably had the original contracts of the debts which is why he was going back to get the accounts to bring them back to the master. And in, uh, you'll also notice in reading those verses, there was no cordial greeting with the debtors. There was no explanation of what he was trying to do and why he was altering the contracts. Rather, it was a sense of hastiness, getting straight down to business. And rightly so, because that master is, has already called him out and he is waiting for him to return with his account. He doesn't have much time to delay. So we, we see that he's devised this plan to reduce the bills in a very generous way for the debtors. Like saying, hey, I'll scratch your back if you scratch my back. And while the parable gives examples of only two debtors, it would not be unreasonable to think that there were several more in line as well. All of whom this manager would be looking to for a big favor in return in the near future. 
And again, while this may have seemed generous by reducing the debts, I want to point out that this is definitely not considered, considered generosity from its purest form as Doug outlined a couple Sundays ago. This plan was purely self-centered. He's looking out for his own, his own life. As seen in verses 5 through 7, the dishonest manager reduces 100 measures of oil down to 50 and 100 measures of wheat down to 80. Now, while I cannot say for certain the exact worth of that, commentators have approximated that 100 measures of oil, likely olive oil, was equivalent to about 800 to 900 gallons. It's pretty significant. That's also about the yield from about 150 olive trees. So again, reducing that bill in half was quite a substantial reduction. Similarly, we have 100 measures of wheat. That could be approximated to about 1,000 bushels. Or, or look at it from this way, that's the yield from about 100 acres of land. That's no small plot of land. And that's what they owed originally. Ultimately, the reduction in each bill owed was, a, was substantial with the intent that the dishonest manager would secure his future financially by reminding these debtors of what he had done for them and then asking for that generous favor in return. Continuing in verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. This is where things get interesting. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And we read, the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. What? What is Jesus stating here? Was the master praising the dishonest manager? Is Jesus stating that we should be scheming plans like the dishonest manager? Let's make sure we have this understood rightly. The manager was clearly dishonest, as it states earlier, which is why he's being fired. So this text is not stating the master was pleased with the manager. He was not praising the manager for doing something morally wrong. Rather, in a sense, the master appreciated the quick-wittedness of the manager after being caught and fired. Think of it as if the master was playing chess and called checkmate, game over, to that manager. But the manager, with his quick thinking, saw one more move to secure his future, which caused the master to have a momentary response, kind of like a, huh, well played as if he just realized he had been bested by that manager. That's the kind of response. That's what we're talking about, what Jesus was saying when he commended the manager. In the end, the manager is still fired. He has lost his job. Now, when it states, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light, we see here that Jesus is contrasting how unbelievers are more sharp in their thinking when it comes to securing their own future from a worldly perspective, compared to the thinking by believers when dealing with their future security 
from an eternal perspective. In other words, we should be more smart, we should be more sharp in our thinking each and every day on how we speak, how we act, and how we use our resources, all given by God, with the eternal perspective in mind, or as Dean stated last week, with the end in mind. Now, I'm going to take a little liberty here with what I believe Jesus was stating. It's almost like Jesus is referring to believers who have set their life on cruise control. They believe, they have faith, but now they're just enjoying the ride of life until Jesus calls them home with nothing much to show for. They are using their finances and wealth to fulfill their own wants and desires rather than using it with an outward focus of helping others. And I can only imagine that all of us have been guilty of that to some degree in the past. Let me put this another way. Remember what we stated in 14? The Pharisees are lovers of money. And Jesus states later on in the passage, we cannot serve money and God. If you love money, you cannot love God. It's one or the other. Jesus is wanting us to be generous with our money. Let me rephrase that. Jesus is wanting us to be generous with his money while having an outward helping others focus in order to avoid becoming a lover for money ourselves. Now, if there were any doubt in believing what I just stated, let's recall what Jesus told the rich young ruler who asked how to inherit, inherit eternal life. This man believed he was a good person and he believed he kept the commandments. But what did Jesus tell him? If you, if you were to look in Mark chapter 10, verses 21 to 22, it would read, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This interaction between Jesus and the rich young ruler revealed what mattered most to the young man, his worldly possessions. His money and possessions had become an idol in his own heart, and that replaced his love for God, because he was unwilling to let go of it. He was unwilling to open his hands and become a follower of Jesus. Now, Jesus has shared this theme on money, as we can see here in Luke and back in Mark, with his disciples and others on more than one occasion. And that we need to be more shrewd on how we utilize money so that it doesn't become something we worship and, and idol after. See, Jesus is seeking our full heart's attention, not to be shared with other idols. So he is teaching us a way to rid our hearts of money as an idol and showing us how to rightly use the money in a generous way to help and serve others and follow him. If we continue in verse 9, it says, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So this, this may be another head-scratcher at first, but if we think about it, Jesus is talking directly to the disciples here. 
And he is demonstrating the shrewdness of unbelievers in this parable from a worldly position and how believers should be more shrewd like them from an eternal perspective. The dishonest manager's job has come to an end and he will have to give an account. But the perspective we should be taking as believers is that someday our master, God, will be calling us to give an account as well. We'll need to give an account of what we did here on earth as his manager and stewards of his possessions. So when Jesus states, make friends for yourself by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. The words unrighteous wealth simply means money or worldly wealth. Remember, believers, as believers, we want to store up our treasure in heaven, not our worldly treasure. Because money and wealth here on earth will have no use for us in heaven or after we die. So the words eternal dwellings in verse 9 can, can shed some light on what Jesus meant when the unrighteous wealth fails. From the eternal perspective, our worldly wealth, our money, will fail us when we die. It will no longer be of help to us. Jesus is stating that we, as believers, should not be stingy with the use of our money or hoarding our money and worldly possessions, but rather we should be generously using it as good stewards for the purpose of bridging relationships, helping others in need, and growing the church body for further gospel missions. We need to remember that all that we have, all the money in our pockets, all the money in our bank accounts, Everything we own belongs to God. How are we managing what rightfully belongs to God? How are we performing as God's stewards? How are, are we good stewards? Or are we dishonest and unfaithful stewards? It's essential that we all have a solid understanding on what biblical stewardship is, particularly as believers and that we are obedient in living that out each day, holding on to what God gives us with an open hand. Verses 10 through 13, Jesus kind of doubles down on what he was saying. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. One who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in, what, in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? Verse 13 again. No, no servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Okay, so in verses 10 through 13, we see here that Jesus has just laid down a litmus test for us, if you will. Fill in the blanks, your money, your job, your kids, whatever it is. Are you taking what God gave you to manage? Are you taking it and uh, managing it rightfully? Even though it fully belongs to him, are you trying to call it your own? Are you trying to grab onto it with a closed fist and not wanting to let go? Or from a different perspective, 
Are you wasting what God gave you? Again, fill in the blank. Your wealth, your health, your time, your spiritual gifts. Imagine this with me, if you will. Whatever your fill in the blanks are. If you have a closed fist around it, what are you saying? Could it be that you're saying it's mine, wanting it for yourself? Or maybe you're holding on to it because you just don't feel like you can trust God enough to take care of it the right way. Whatever your reason, that closed fist is demonstrating your unfaithfulness with little. As it states in verses 10 through 11, one who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you to the true riches? If your hands are not open, how do you expect to receive more true riches? If you were to open your hands, you're allowing God to fill you with more. But if you're holding on tight to what you have right now, how are you expecting him to fill you with more? You're, you're already holding on tight too much. And, and that litmus test, as it states, the warning in verse 13, you cannot serve God and money. So who are you loving more? As Jesus states. You might say you love God with lip service, but if you have that closed fist around whatever you're filling the blanks are, that is revealing where your love really lies and what you're really serving or are devoted to. So this parable, it's dealing with how money is being used by, by us as God's stewards. So I want to make sure that I stay on track with this topic as we wrap this up. So with that, here are a few pointed questions that I want each of us to honest answer, sorry, answer honestly. Are you, am I, acting in a non-generous way with money when it comes to using it to help others? Are we reluctant to give? Let's take a moment just to think about that. And adding to that as you're thinking about that. When there is a clear need within our church, or within your own community group? Do you make excuses as to why you cannot contribute? Or do you hesitate to respond in order to see if someone else will, will fulfill the need first? Or do you just assume that someone else will provide? Or maybe you contribute, but you hold back on how much you can give. Now, I'm not saying that we all need to give away everything that we have. Again, we need to be good stewards. We need to manage our money well that God gives us. As good managers of God, we need to pay our bills. We need to pay our taxes. We need to pay for food so we can eat. We need to save money for emergencies. We need to save for expected large purchases. You know, again, that's just being wise with our finances. But remember, your bank account and your resources are truly God's money. They're truly God's resources, and he's putting you in charge of it. So here's another question. Are you tithing to church? If your answer is no, what is your reason? What was your justification? Take some time to think about that. 
Imagine God has called you right now face to face to give an account. How would you answer him? Would you think you're being a good and faithful servant? Again, I'm not talking about situations where people are hard-pressed to find money to feed themselves or maybe have large mounting medical bills. But if you find yourself saying no more often than yes, because it would interfere with your own personal desires and wishes, how is that a good example of good stewardship? On the flip side, if you answered yes, great. But are you cheerfully giving? Or are you grumbling over the fact that you're giving, up, giving away money that could be used for something else? Remember, Jesus already knows our hearts. And he's seeking to have it fully. Each one of us must give as we have decided to give in our hearts. Not reluctantly, not under, on, out of compulsion. Whatever amount we have decided to give, God wants us to give it with a cheerful heart. So in kind of wrapping all of this up, there's a couple uh, scriptures that I want to refer to. And this is, this is my hope for all of us, and this is my prayer for us, that this is what we would hear when Jesus calls us home. So this is out of Matthew chapter 25, verses 34 through 40. And it says, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly, I say to you, as you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And lastly, uh, same chapter of Matthew, but verse 23. This would be, again, my, my prayer for all of us that we'll hear this on the end. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of my master, of your master. Thank you. You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about Redemption Hill Church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org.